from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just finished recording our news show, and we covered some big topics. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including US and UK consumers using buy now, pay later to buy groceries. We had a quite a debate about whether we needed better regulation, whether we need more responsible lending, or whether this is actually uh, a way of helping people get food on the table. Then Pez Isha raises $11 million from Women's World Banking. And we talked about the importance of venture capital funding, particularly for women or female-owned businesses, and really trying to drive small businesses, particularly those founded by women, and help those businesses succeed. And the PayPal story could be coming to a screen near you. We talked about the fascinating history of PayPal, the influence its founders like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk have had on the whole fintech ecosystem. We'll get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Your favorite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday, 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to episode 660 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, Global Strategy Director of Digital Business Growth. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm very well, thanks, Benjamin. Been in the office today and in the studio recording, so always great to be around people. It is indeed good to be around people. And good to be in the studio. As always, we're joined by some very special guests. First of all, making their debut on Fintech Insider, we have Vinay Singh, Managing Director of Anthemis. Welcome to the show, Vinay. Can you give our listeners an introduction to you and your role at Anthemis, please? Sure, happy to. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, as, as you said, my name is Vinay. I'm Managing Director at Anthemis, the financial services and fintech investment platform and VC firm. Uh, I'm actually based in the U.S. And, and newly relocated from the East Coast in New York uh, to the West Coast in Los Angeles. I'm part of the early stage investment team. We'll unpack a little bit the types of themes and, and areas that we're focused on. But, you know, very broadly, uh, the firm invests across, you know, kind of multi-stage, multi-geography, but with a focus on financial services uh, and, and fintech. And I tend to focus on areas of kind of embedded finance and contextual finance. And, and I think that'll play into the conversation today, uh, you know, very closely around kind of themes like buy now, pay later, and so on. Pleasure to be here, thank you. Fantastic, thank you and welcome. It's also a FinTech Insider debut for Tessa Bryant, Head of Brand and Communications at Lightyear. Welcome, Tessa. Can you give our listeners a little introduction to you and to, and to Lightyear? And also perhaps tell us a little bit about the new initiative, The Herd, which you're part of. Hi, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so Lightyear is a new investment platform uh, for Europe. We, we've been around for about a year now and we're backed by Richard Branson and Lightspeed Venture Capital Partners. Um, and The Herd is a new initiative for uh, 
female speakers and non-binary speakers, sort of like a big index that was launched by uh, Chantal Swainson, who's currently at WISE. Um, and I can't tell you as somebody who's worked in fintech and, and arranging these sort of events and panels for a while, how much this sort of index was really needed. It's it's a really cool initiative. And uh, hopefully if you work at a fintech business or you know some really awesome women in fintech, get them, get them on that list. <laughs> Fantastic. I certainly know some awesome women in fintech, and it's very good to meet another one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is uh, was reported in uh, the New York Times and in the Big Issue and various other media, which is that shoppers are relying on buy now, pay later and microloans for groceries in the UK and the US and indeed doubtless many other countries. So as inflation mounts, Americans are increasingly turning to buy now, pay later providers to finance what they eat. Food accounted for about 6% of buy now, pay later purchases in the States in 2021. In the past year, buy now, pay later player Zip has seen 95% growth in US grocery purchases and 64% growth in restaurant transactions. Klarna, meanwhile, reports that more than half of the top 100 items its app users are buying are grocery or household items. Zilch says groceries and dining out account for 38% of its transactions. Meanwhile, in the UK, around 50,000 people applied for microloans from supermarket Iceland in its first week of launch. The Iceland Food Club has been made available across the UK, with people able to apply for loans of between £25 and £100 to pay for groceries in the supermarket stores. Customers are able to pay back £10 per week under the scheme, which Iceland Foods Managing Director Richard Walker says was intended to tackle food insecurity. So, should we be worried about this growing trend Nicole, let's start with you. Is this a concern? Well, I think first and foremost, there's a huge concern about we're even in the position where customers would be using such a product like this. And I'm sure we're all aware of why that concern is, is you know, paramount today. But I feel like that's a discussion for another day. If we look at the product and the proposition itself and the provider, I have to say normally my initial reaction to something like this would be of concern But having looked at some of the materials that are out there about the product um, and seeing Richard Walker explain the sort of purpose for Iceland bringing that in, if we're specifically thinking of the Iceland example, I can actually see why it, it might be something that could work and is genuinely ethical. I think the fact that it's backed by an ethical lender who's actually a charity is one positive sign. And it is a need that people are requiring at this point in time. You just hope that it's, of course, delivered sensibly and with the right parameters so that it's used at the point of need rather than becoming something that rolls on month to month and debt grows and whatnot. Um, But yeah, as I say, I watched some of the coverage of it and it felt to me like it was something that was being brought to shoppers because of, particularly in the Iceland example, because of their needs rather than an opportunity to exploit people that are vulnerable at the moment. So you're saying there's sort of different angles to this story. On the one hand, you've got a supermarket that's introducing lending to try and help some of its customers afford food and and manage their money. And on the other hand, you've got people who may be using buy now, pay later in ways that perhaps it wasn't intended for in the first place. So we've got sort of two couple of different things going on here. So yeah, we have two scenarios. We have buy now, pay later providers that are offering 
by now police or services for smaller transactions. And that might be transactions that could be classed as luxury items um, or on top of normal basic daily needs items. And then you have this Iceland proposition or, you know, one of the supermarket type propositions where it's absolute basic need. And some people could argue, well, you'd use a credit card for socialising or buying a coffee. So why is this any different? Well, I think the fact that Iceland in particular are clearly responding to an absolute desperation need puts, you know, there's two different arguments and two different reflections on what By Now Pay Later is trying to solve in those two scenarios. Vinay, I'd love to bring you in on this and, and, you know, thinking partly from your perspective as an investor, when Buy Now Pay Later was sort of first developed and so on, were people thinking about customers using this to buy food? Is that a concern? You know, people... You know, is that people who are budgeting intelligently or is that people who are financially badly overstretched and the the beginnings of a sort of a credit crisis, perhaps, for some buy now, pay later lenders? Yeah, thanks. And and I think you're asking exactly the right questions that all of us that are in this ecosystem should be asking. But I think, you know, taking a step back and even just kind of understanding why has buy now, pay later exploded in terms of usage, both, you know, in terms of the use cases, but also in the kind of share of wallets uh, that consumers are using it for. It speaks to, I think, two very important kind of underlying trends or, or, or user needs. Uh, one is the kind of need for higher resolution in the types of financial products available to us, you know, somewhere between kind of cash and debit and a traditional credit card there weren't many options in between there. And, and you know, buy now, pay later kind of provided exactly that. Uh, and then the other one, and probably the mo- more important one, is consumers increasing desire. And, and this is true kind of not just for, you know, consumers, but I think businesses as well, for, you know, what we would call kind of contextual finance, which is f- accessing financial products at the point of usage. Um, and, you know, increasingly people don't necessarily want to have relationships with traditional financial institutions, don't necessarily want to go into bank branches. That seems kind of obvious now. But even, you know, don't want it. it it's not non-trivial to sign up for a credit card, a new credit card. Um, whereas, you know, the the promise of the buy now, play, pay later providers and, and, and kind of providing this credit in context is that it's fast, it's very seamless, uh, and it allows, again, for this kind of high resolution and the types of credit products that you can, you as a consumer can access. The flip side of that, it, it's a double-edged sword, as, as we've kind of started to talk about, and as you're rightfully asking, is, you know, what is the responsibility of a company when extending credit? Uh, and and in, in terms of how, uh, what are the kind of safety nets that they have to provide their users? What are the guardrails? Uh you know, I think the hallmark of buy now, pay later is that there's very little guardrails. That's what makes it so wonderful and easy to use. And you can use it to buy a $3 coffee or, a, you know, $3,000 computer and everything in between. I, I, I you know, I, I'm of the mindset that is not, there should not be some type of regulatory guardrails on what types of products can be used. I think people, you know, need to be educated and, and, and kind of be given also, in context, consumers need to be given some of these types of, you know, checks and balances and understanding about how they're using these financial products and the impacts it's going to have. One of the challenges, you know, the, the, the clean cleanliness of a credit card is that I get a monthly statement. I know exactly what my balance is when I put whether, again, it's the coffee or the computer on there. I understand that within a month, 
I am going to have to pay for it. If I have 500 different purchases on buy now, pay later, each with their own payment schemes and payment payoff timelines, it starts to become very hard to balance that. And if I have it across kind of multiple accounts uh, and, and it is a recipe for, you know, kind of defaults and, and kind of financial trouble, which we're starting to see as, as, as you noted, as kind of the, you know, macro environment uh, in general and the kind of micro, you know, financial environment for individuals is becoming more challenged. We're, we're obviously seeing this kind of come to bear in, in, in ways that are concerning. I think it behooves, all of us in this community, everyone from the providers to us investors to uh, the traditional financial institutions, to start to think about kind of financial education in a new light. You know, the types of finance products that are being offered are way more complex and varied than they were even five years ago and definitely 15 years ago. Our financial, I think, education, you know, the way we treat that is still a bit dated. And, and, and that's where I think we have to spend a lot of time focusing. Tessa, what, what do you think on this? Is 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 it the case that the buy now, pay later is sort of taking advantage of a regulatory loophole that exists in many countries and is now being used for things that perhaps it was never really intended for with potentially bad consequences? Or do you agree with this argument that all we really need is just more customer education? And if people were just better educated, then things will be okay. And if we just, you know, consumers just understood their finances better and knew what they were getting into, everything will be okay. Do we do we need more regulation here or more education or both? I think a little bit of both. I mean, it's it's really hard to argue with the the Iceland example for for instance, because like people need to eat. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it, it's really hard to sort of say, well, actually, like this product can't be right for that because that person doesn't know what they're getting into. But then at the end of the day, they go home with no shopping, and actually, who who loses? Well, everybody loses. And I think when it comes to education, that's something that can be done probably a bit better. If you think about when buy now pay later was sort of brought in for the first time, it was for bigger purchases. You sort of did your research. You were like, I want to buy this television, or I want to buy these flights, and I can't afford them, so I'm gonna look up how to do it and you realize, okay, I'm gonna pay these amount of installments over this amount of months. This is what it costs. You kind of you have a lot of information about like the schedule there. If you're like in a checkout queue and it takes you two minutes and you really quickly do it, do you spend the time like actually thinking, oh well if I miss a couple of payments, that could be really bad. Do you understand what that means? Um I think probably not at the moment. But I don't want to jump the gun and say actually it's a really bad thing because ultimately people need it and it has the potential to help, you know, economically vulnerable people, which is fintech as a force for good. That That's a really mm-hmm. positive thing. But I think education is really important here, as is with most aspects of fintech, to be honest. Like the more we're doing things on the go and the more we're doing things like quickly or integrating our banks to different apps and stuff, I think more education there is is needed across the board. So the answer perhaps is around responsible lending, around lenders, buy now, pay later lenders or other lenders being under pressure from regulators to to lend responsibly and make sure that they're not making people's financial situations worse. Because, Vinay, I completely agree with your point about it's it's good that it's making loans accessible. I think one of the interesting things about this Iceland example is that it's helping people get away from loan sharks and completely unscrupulous lenders. But there's definitely a need for for, for responsible lending, I think, isn't there? And how do you how do you bring that around in a in a good in an easy regulatory way? Okay, well, that's a another topic for another day, I think. <laughs> Responsible uh, lending regulation. Okay, let's move on to our next story. Embedded finance fintech Pez Isha has raised $11 million in funding, led by the second Gender Lens 
investment fund from non-profit Women's World Banking. The Kenyan-based startup will use the capital to scale operations in its core markets in East Africa and grow into new geographies within sub-Saharan Africa. Pez Isha's digital lending infrastructure focuses on providing affordable working capital to small and medium enterprises that may feel excluded from traditional lending channels. It is such a massive problem that SMEs face a funding gap of more than 300 billion US dollars, Pez Isha says. The fintech bridges this gap by offering productive credit to tech-enabled platforms such as Twiga Foods, Jumia, and MarketForce. The involvement of US nonprofit Women's World Banking is testament to the fact that Pezisha is female-founded and female-led. So I think I'm going to come to you on this one, Tessa. Um, how important is it to have female-led businesses and 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 female? funding. So to the sort of male listeners, why, why is that important? Who, who needed to explain to them? That's, that sounds patronizing. Um, so how, why is that important? It's uh, so important. I mean, that if you look at all of the numbers from the amount of female-led businesses getting funding to the amount of male, there's obviously, there's gaps there. Everybody talks about the gender investment gap. And I think it's it's twofold, right? There's less investments, so there's less female entrepreneurs, and it's this big cycle that goes around. And, and I think you get the wheel spinning and it increases on both counts. So you put more money into female-led businesses and then more females start businesses because there's more money for them. And it kind of goes around like that. I mean, it's important from just a, a general world point. I mean, <laughs> men and women have different perspectives on life, so funding businesses from people that have different perspectives is just important for global economic growth. But from a personal perspective, yeah, I mean, there's something I've been super passionate about for a really long time. I spent a lot of time at Cedars trying to figure out how we could get more female entrepreneurs on the platform, fund them, get more female investors investing in them. But yeah, main, mainly just like a big, broad macro point is it's just it's better for everyone if, if, if everything's a bit more diverse. Nicole, I imagine you wildly disagree. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I mean, echo everything that you said, Tessa. And for me, the way that I can kind of, I was thinking visuals, I can see this as like lovely halo effect of that. Yeah, you know, you have the the Women's World Bank, um, you know, feeding into this new fintech, feeding into women-led businesses. And all of a sudden that ecosystem just flourishes and you learn more and it's much healthier. And yeah, naturally it scales. And you can't like, it's role models, right? Like you can't Absolutely. have more female entrepreneurs in an ecosystem unless they have female entrepreneurs to look up to. Yeah. And then by default, hopefully in X amount of years, male investors will look at the returns that these female VC funds or female investors are getting from these investments and thinking, actually, I want a piece of that. And then it starts yeah. to it starts to really even out. Yeah. So, so Vinay, as a, as a male investor, <laughs> can I bring you in? I mean, how are you looking at this opportunity of, of firstly, sort of funding small businesses in Africa, but also this lens of um, female-led uh, businesses? Do you see that as a, an exciting opportunity? 110%, and, and for many different dimensions. Uh, I mean, first, uh, I think this is a global issue, also a global opportunity, and, and maybe taking a slightly different lens. Um, to it, we see massive amounts of opportunity locked up in small and medium businesses, and in particular in the kind of S end of that spectrum in the small businesses, ranging everything from kind of the solopreneur to, to small corner shops to you know small professional services businesses. And they have, and, and by the way, in that end of the spectrum, disproportionately companies founded and led by women. Um, and 
disproportionately underserved and, and, and not entirely, although probably on a kind of, if you look at a macro level, in part because they are founded by, you know, kind of underfunded, underrepresented entrepreneurs, I'm using that word very loosely, because I think, you know, we're talking everything, like I said, from the freelancer to somebody running uh, a corner coffee shop. Uh, but in part neglected also because it's very hard to service that end of the spectrum. It's hard for traditional financial institutions to take their underwriting that works for 100-person businesses, 500-person businesses, and surely 5,000-person businesses and apply it to, uh, a, you know, like I said, a kind of solo trader and, and so on. And so this is one of those areas that I think fintech has a real opportunity to impact, uh, both for good, but also for, you know, kind of to tap into that massive opportunity. And what, what we've been seeing is either kind of, you know, community based and, and using that word pretty loosely, community could be a geography, it could be a certain demographic, but, you know, community based businesses, you know, like the one that you mentioned at the top of the segment that are solving a very specific need uh, and have kind of very localized understanding of that space. The other thing that we're seeing are businesses, you know, kind of vertically integrated businesses, but uh, vertically integrated platforms targeted at small businesses. This could be kind of the software platform for medical practices. It also kind of offers uh, invoice financing kind of in context. It's, you know, in the U.S., we're seeing them uh, sprout up for kind of very specific types of retail businesses. Uh, you know, there, there, there's kind of a, a vertical software platform for pizza shops as an example and barber shops and so on. And <laughs> that's a way to kind of take, you know, if, if the kind of micro loans to these small businesses in and of themselves is not maybe a kind of a sustainable and scalable business, but also offering them software and also offering them other services and packaging that together, then, then you kind of can create, you know, venture backable, scalable businesses in an exciting way. So uh, yeah, I've kind of taken your question in different direction in sorts because I appreciate, you know, I'm kind of an outsider to this conversation and, and want to kind of acknowledge that perspective. But I think just taking kind of an investor lens to it, uh, there's massive opportunity here. And, and it's an area that we're focused on. I hope people continue to kind of pile into the space. I'd welcome more capital in it. Definitely. Tessa, I want to bring you back in. So last week on the podcast, we talked about Hannah Duncan's article on the huge gender gap in VC funding and so on. Do you think gender-specific sort of venture capital funds like this are, are part of the answer to the funding gap in, in fintech? I think before you want to sort of solve any any like problem with any type of diversity, you need to kind of go hard. Like you need to go hard in that direction. So yeah, essentially, if if we if we've arrived at this situation because there aren't enough um, VC funds investing in female-led businesses, creating some that specifically do that will like help start to solve that problem. I think otherwise, everybody sort of tries to figure out how can we fix this, and and then before you know, another few years have passed, and actually no one's done any in investing. Um, so I think yeah, it's, I would say yes. Um, that that's super important. I think the thing that I love about this is that it's the intersectionality because tackling female-led funding or the gender gap in investing, you know, VC investing is obviously huge. But actually, in order to tackle it in very specific markets and to unleash capability in those markets, that intersectionality is key. So not only do we have, we're tackling the gender issue, but we're tackling a financing issue into Africa and having a founder who is both female and has that localised experience and background is providing the bridge between that global economy and then that localised need. And that is where this will become really special and impactful because you have that empathy and understanding 
and knowledge of the infrastructure and how the SMEs work, um, where the formalities are, where there might be informalities. So all of that gorgeous and delicious local knowledge combined with the fact that we're tackling a wider issue, I think, is, is a really special thing here. I'm going to ask you a last quick question, Vinay, um, just focusing on Africa. So given that we've got an economic downturn hitting you know, lots of world markets, do you think uh, sort of VC funds and, and investors are going to continue looking at Africa as a high growth opportunity? Or do you think they're going to sort of contract and pull back funding? What do you think will happen to sort of funding for African fintechs over the next couple of years? Do you have a perspective on what might happen? Yeah, I, it's admittedly a cop-out answer, but I think both. <laughs> uh, I think what you'll see is firms who have kind of understood that geography, and we're using a very broad stroke here when we when we talk about Africa, but uh, you know, who have understood that geography and started to make inroads into that space, both in terms of building their ecosystem, building their understanding of the market and and the kind of needs on the ground. And, um, you know, deploying capital in that space, I think we'll see the opportunity to lean in. And I, and I would put Anthemis in that category. That's kind of exactly how we've been building in that region for the last, you know, now 10 years. And I think the tourist investors will probably retreat um, for, for the obvious reasons and, and kind of go back to focusing on whatever their core, you know, geography or thesis is. So I, how it nets out to be seen is, is essentially kind of a wash in terms of the amount of capital flowing in. But, you know, I, I can speak to it from our perspective. We think, you know, whether we're talking about kind of Africa broadly, Latin America broadly, uh, and other, you know, quote unquote, emerging markets, there's huge opportunity in particular in fintech. On, on one hand, they kind of, in certain types of applications, lead the world, you know, look at mobile payments, kind of Africa and Asia way ahead of the rest of the world. But in terms of the infrastructure, oftentimes it sits a layer up from that and a layer down from that, still have a lot of building left to go. And and so we see huge opportunities there and are continuing to invest in in those geographies. And, and I think, in fact, we'll lean in more in the coming years. Excellent. Thank you. And I like the term tourist, tourist investor. Um, well, we didn't really get into uh, embedded finance on the, on the on this story. But if you're interested in hearing more about uh, embedded finance, um, go check out our recent Explores video on this subject presented by David Barton Grimley on our YouTube channel. OK, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back very shortly. Hey folks, the first ever 11FS Awards are coming this November and we need you, our listeners, to get involved in the nominations. Let us know who you think are the industry game changers, the biggest rule breakers and the best leaders. Nominate your favorite companies worthy of recognition over 14 different categories right now over at 11FSAwards.com. That's 11FSAwards.com. Get your nominations in before midnight on Monday 19th of September. Then join us on November 16th to celebrate the best and the brightest in the fintech and financial services industry. Full details on 11fsawards.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. This is that Dutch bank ING has pulled the plug on Yolt, shutting down its UK open banking operation. Yolt, which began life as a consumer-facing money management app back in 2017, has been permanently closed down by parent company ING. 
ING had put Yolt on notice last September when it repositioned the business as Yolt Technology Services with a pure business-to-business open banking offering. The move saw Yolt's consumer-facing app shut down to put Yolt in a stronger position to compete with companies like Plaid and Bud in the competitive open banking market. However, it now appears that ING has made the decision to phase out the brand entirely. The Dutch banking giant said that after an evaluation of the business, ING has concluded that it's not feasible to achieve its ambitions with Yolt. So what do we think went wrong here? Is this big established firms struggling to set up, make startups succeed? Is it that just startups are hard and so lots of startups succeed? The fact it happened to be opened by a big bank was nothing. Is it to do with open banking? Tessa, what what was your take on this story? So for me, my take is maybe it was more to do with just not executing well because from an open banking perspective, there's so much green space there that needs to be fixed around Europe. Um, you know, the UK is pretty pretty far ahead in that respect. Um, at Lightyear, we see almost all of our UK payments coming through open banking. Um, but Europe, on the other hand, is really patchy and there's not really a good provider that can, like, be truly pan-European and, and sort of connect all these markets together. You've got, like, Ideal in the Netherlands and, and BankLink in Estonia and so forth in Germany. Um, so... If, for me, it's probably an execution thing. Like maybe it was hard. There's lots of competitors. We still have, I think, got to wait for the competitors to to do more too. Um, but there, there was definitely an opportunity there. Is this another example where the sort of European fintechs sort of lose out to the American fintechs because someone like Plaid with a big backyard, you know, builds a really strong business in the states and then starts providing services in other markets? Vinay, what? What's your sense on this? I mean, you know, as Tessa said, the UK ought to have an advantage with open banking. Is this a sign that, you know, startups from bigger markets are more likely to succeed? What, what do you think of this? I, you know, at the risk of, of shortening this conversation uh, in this topic, which I think is interesting, <laughs> I think maybe we should, you know, be careful to make kind of broad generalizations from this one experience. I think you're absolutely right. Building a fintech inside of a, a larger financial institution is hard. And I think kind of we should also acknowledge a fintech that went, as you as you did, went through a pivot. Pivots are hard. Pivots are particularly hard when you're inside a large multinational company of any sort, you know, perhaps financial institution, maybe more kind of even acutely, who have kind of quarter to quarter, you know, kind of demands. And, you know, I, I guess maybe kind of answering the question more directly, uh, is this an indictment of open banking? No. Is this an indictment of kind of the ability for European fintechs to build in the open banking space? No. I think there's massive opportunities, uh, you know, clearly being tapped into, uh, as we just noted, in in the open banking space. I think there's lots more to be built. It, it has become so integral to how, you know, consumers access their financial products, to how fintechs are building and how kind of traditional banks are able to tap into new customers, thanks to the fact that, you know, fintechs can build on top of their infrastructure they built. So perhaps minor setback, perhaps there's something kind of instructive here. But I also think, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. Uh, Nicole, do you agree with that? Do we still need the, the sort of solutions that, that Yolt was was trying to build? Do you sort of agree with Tessa that maybe it's a combination of execution and other things that just, you know, we can't really generalize from this? What do you think? Yeah, my thinking was that as much to us working in fintech, open banking feels very uh, 
comfortable and we're aware of it and you know used to it and whatnot. I think it's still a relatively new technology with relatively low adoption. So my thinking on this was that actually if providers are going to invest in open banking, they may be going with a provider that has a stronger track record or are, have bigger market presence. And actually you having not started the race at the same time as these other providers because they were focused elsewhere has maybe impacted their ability to scale and get credibility at the same rate that the competitors did, uh, therefore potentially influencing who might choose to work with them and then therefore not a very successful business. So that was my kind of thinking and, yeah, the pivot being potentially um, damage, damageable to that new strategy and, yeah, just at the pace of executing a new technology. Tessa, I'd love to come to you as a, as a as another fintech. How important is the sort of open banking to to you, or maybe open finance, and being able to access customers' data? Maybe help some of your customers see their you know their, their wider portfolio, or using open banking to simplify payments. How how important is that sort of core capability, that access to the sort of payment rails to to to, to you? So yeah, for us. The, the payment side of it is so important um, from a cost perspective, for one. Like, it's so much cheaper than cards and card <laughs> payments. Um, but from a sort of, like, trust angle as well, you you know, it's instantaneous. I think with fintech, anytime your money <laughs> doesn't arrive instantly, you, you think it's missing and you, you sort of have a panic moment where you're like, oh, because these businesses are new. You're like, do I trust them? Is my money lost in the atmosphere? Um, you know, the biggest question that we received before open banking was, where is my money? Because our, our, our payments took between one and however many hours to come through. And as soon as you do open banking, that question disappears. Uh, they can see it leave their account instantly and see it arrive instantly. So I think from a trust perspective, it's got a lot to say for itself as well. And then from like a recurring payments perspective, that's really interesting for us being able to help people like build healthy investment habits, i.e. that you can set up a recurring payment to come to your investment account every month and invest it in X stocks or diversify with X ETFs. Um, that's that's interesting too. Uh, so for us, pretty important. We just haven't yet been able to sort of like launch it properly across pan-European markets because we haven't had a provider that's like been able to do that. We, we have to have lots of different partners in lots of different places. So I think, as Vinay said, there's so much opportunity there for that to be tapped into. Finay, do you think this, does this market sort of tend to lean towards becoming a monopoly eventually, or not a monopoly, a market that's dominated by one provider? Because although it is open, right, open banking, etc., to some extent, aggregation, if you are able, as, as Tessa said, to aggregate multiple players, multiple markets, you become so easy to do business with compared with, as you say, Tessa, sort of patching it together from a number of different providers. Does that naturally, do you think that naturally gives an advantage to a sort of big provider that gets really well established in this space? Or do you think there's no, there's loads of room for competition? What do you think? Yeah, I think it skews towards favoring scale. Uh, monopoly, maybe, you know, kind of, uh, I, I don't know if we'll, we'll end up there. It has to go to that level. But, you know, and, and to agree with and echo what Nicole said, we're still in the early innings of this. So, you know, when we see early stage, uh, you know, fintechs, this is an example uh, that are building on open, you know, kind of open banking APIs, in particular in the US, the default is that they use Plaid. I mean, it's kind of the tends to be the no brainer. It's the equivalent of nobody getting fired for using IBM, but for startups. Uh, <laughs> You know, but the the natural evolution of things will happen, which is like at massive scale, the you know the kind of the major companies or the the largest companies 
we'll start to have, you know, kind of less differentiation in the services and how they how they work together. And we'll start to see, I think, kind of open banking platforms sprout up that are being much more specialized, either by geography, either by use case, either in the terms of the kind of types of services and services that they offer and services that they enable. But it's it's early days. But, you know, absolutely, to Tessa's point, uh, if you can't offer a certain type of scale, and again, that can be in the t- both the amount and types of transactions that you can handle, as well as the geographies that you cover, you're going to be highly disadvantaged in this space. Yeah, thank you. That's a good a good summary. Okay. Um, well, if you listeners want to find out more about the latest developments in open banking, do listen to Fintech Insider Insights, episode 651, where we discussed how the upcoming PSD3 regulation will shape the industry in Europe. And sticking to Europe, our next story comes from Berlin. Uh, Just Home houses 3.3 million euros to assist first-time home buyers. Just Home, which is a Berlin-based home financing startup, has raised 3.3 million euros in a funding round led by Target Global. Launched this year, Just Home offers aspiring home buyers rates from over 700 lenders and a digital platform to steer them to completion. Operating in Germany's 1.5 trillion euro mortgage market, the company is also developing its own financing solutions specifically targeted at budget-conscious first-time homebuyers. According to the German Economic Institute, home ownership in Germany is the lowest among European countries, with a rate of approximately 45%. Hundreds of thousands of aspiring homeowners face the enormous complexity of the home-buying process and are priced out of the market. The startup claims that customers get better financing terms and can access properties that would otherwise not be available to them. To find out more about this, we asked Just Home's co-founder and co-CEO, Johanna Svenner, to explain why home ownership is so low, or relatively low, in Germany, and what they plan to do to simplify the process. You are asking a big question, but I will try to keep my answer short. The one thing I want to say is that home ownership rates have always been low in Germany, and that's just due to systemic reasons like supply for rental properties, the government doing a lot for tenants, and transaction costs being extraordinarily high in Germany when you look into the European landscape and compare it to other markets. The other thing I want to say, though, is that over the last two decades, what we have seen is a dramatic drop in the number of transactions happening annually of people transitioning from renting to owning. So 20 years ago, we looked at more than 700,000 people making the move from a rental property into their own home on an annual basis. And now this number has dropped to less than 400,000 a year. And this delta of 300,000 can only be explained by the you know, dramatic increase in price levels that has taken place and uh, people are just priced out of the market. It's as easy as that. We want to provide a financial solution that is not existent in the market today, where people that are in this segment of the market where they can afford a home, but it's difficult, they get to enjoy a product that is easy to understand and has an easy and transparent process where you always know when you do what and why. Nicole, is this complicated mortgage process and and the difficulty of affording home just a German issue? I mean, it sounds quite familiar to me. Yeah, it's it's definitely close to home, isn't it? Um, 
And I, um, in the summer, was actually working on, um, you know, enhancing a mortgage solution in the UAE. So we know that it definitely expands globally and the difficulties and complexities. And to be quite honest, the pain of doing it is is present in, in more markets than just in Germany. I think, however, where we may see particularly more pain in Germany is that because there's a lower appetite for home ownership, you subsequently have a lower population of people having that demand and it's maybe not as an attractive an investment option to make that um, that journey and that experience for customers better. So it could particularly be even more painful in Germany where providers haven't you know, paid attention to investing in their mortgage offerings. Vinay, have you seen um, fintech sort of helping people to get onto the sort of property ladder who, who otherwise wouldn't be able to? I mean, is there anything that fintechs can do to make it easier for people to afford um, properties? You know, I, I, I imagine you have exactly the same problem in the States in cities like Los Angeles, where you are now, or New York. Um, can, can fintechs magically solve this? How, how can fintechs make make things better for, 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 for ho- would-be homeowners? Uh, I was ready to say an emphatic yes, and then you said magically, and that maybe, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to go that far. That's maybe putting an undue burden on fintechs to solve the world's problems. But yes, I mean, I think kind of generally speaking, absolutely. I mean, if we kind of just zoom out for a minute and look at home ownership, you know, kind of three things are true. This is one of the most important, if not the most important and most impactful kind of financial uh, uh, piece of people's lives over time. Second is the, the systems and the processes are, you know, clunky at best and painful more most often and yes i'm feeling quite acutely having you know left a home that i'm selling in new york while you know trying to rent a home in in los angeles i felt it from both angles and and none of it is smooth or easy um uh and then second uh and it kind of goes back to something we talked about actually at the top of the call about kind of you know increasing desire for consumers to have higher resolution options in the type of financial products if you think about shelter you know your shelter essentially had two options rent uh and and that took a very specific flavor of a kind of monthly payment uh and and on the other end a mortgage and in particular if we're talking in the u.s we're typically talking about a kind of very standardized 20 percent down mortgage that you typically take a 30-year term on uh the transaction cost to enter into and exit out of that mortgage and the the kind of purchase of the house are you know quite high such that it makes doing this with any sense of velocity kind of financially you know problematic fintechs can solve all these problems and, and should, and, 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 you know, again, not to put undue burden on the kind of fintech industry, but, you know, I think in general finance, finance and financial services have hopefully an obligation to kind of offer more options. So yes, if you look kind of, I think to answer a question you asked, this is a big area of focus for us. If you look inside of the kind of Anthemus portfolio, there's several companies doing everything from kind of helping people at that first step on the kind of property ladder to, to improve kind of, you know, the mortgage uh, underwriting process to improve kind of the home insurance, uh, you know, kind of process and contextualizing that inside of, you know, with the buying the home, uh, just massive amounts of opportunity here. Uh, and, and I think kind of, I'm excited. Every time I hear about you know a, a company like we just talked about, it's it's very exciting. Tessa, I'd love to bring you in. Um, one of the things I thought was very interesting about this story is that Just Home is seems to be shifting its strategy, doing that pivot that we were just talking about. That's so difficult for 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 Yolt and many, many many other businesses. So they they currently let buyers compare rates from sort of something like 700 banks, and it seems that part of the new strategy is they'll actually become a direct lender themselves. Do you think? that works how do customers react if they've come to you for choice and then you say oh no we're not going to give you a choice anymore 
I mean, I don't know how they'll do it. So do you think that's going to be challenging or do you think people just like make it easier for me? And if you make it easier for me, maybe I don't care so much about having a choice of rates. I think it's going to be challenging. I think it, like Vinay just said, it's one of the biggest financial decisions that you make. And there's so much trust that you have to put in the institution that you're doing this with. So if you've kind of come... It, it, a very like maybe a very high level example is that you use compare the market to check out your phone would you buy your phone from compare the market maybe yes because they've been around for a while and you've seen loads of adverts and you, you kind of trust them but but maybe no because you think oh will it be a real phone <laughs> like i'm not sure um so i, I would say it's going to be hard like it's i don't think it's going to be impossible but it's a like as a as a financial business they have a lot of um trust that they have to build up in 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 doing something completely different to what they initially were doing um you have to trust that they're going to be around in 30 years uh, because this is your mortgage for a long time. You have to trust that they're going to look after your money and that they're not going to sort of do something really dodgy halfway through and maybe change your rates. I think it, the problem with any fintech is trust, but I think especially when it's such a big financial decision, um, it's, going to make it, it's going to make it an interesting challenge for them to, to, to do this pivot. Do we think, Nicole, do you think we need more sort of specialist mortgage offerings? Are there, are there more opportunities to just improve this whole process i mean you were saying earlier how you, you know you worked on a project to try and improve the process um what, what do you see as some of the opportunities to just make the process better do we need more lenders do we need the existing lenders to improve their processes what, what do you think needs to happen yeah, I think that's some of the challenge with the mortgage market is it's still very broad brush. If you look at some of the most successful areas of fintech, it's where they've targeted niche or um, very specific uh, needs or lifestyles. You know, in personal banking, you've got so many different types of offerings for so many different segments of people. But yet when you look at mortgages, yeah, OK, there might be a, a helpful, handy guide and hints and tips for first time buyers. But actually, are there specific product offerings for that group? No, there's really not. However, we are starting to see some of that emerge. So Bank of America recently announced a programme to assist home ownership for women and minorities. And that actually includes, you know, not having to have a deposit. So that's actually disruption of the product, disruption of that value chain. Um, and I think the more that we see that, the, the more we will actually tackle accessibility rather than just sort of painting around the edges a little bit nicer. Fantastic. Okay, well, if you're interested in listening to more about mortgage processes in the UK, the US and Europe, listen to episode 643 of Fintech Insider, where we spoke to experts from Molo Finance, Bunk and Maxwell. Okay, well, now we're moving to the part of the show where we quickly round up uh, a couple of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover properly, but still deserve a shout out. Nicole, do you want to get us started? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, so first up on the list is Fed Now is Coming is this real-time payments moment? And we picked this story up from Protocol. So the Fed Now system will launch between May and July next year, according to the Federal Reserve. And the new system promises to modernise the way that thousands of institutions move money and allow for greater use of instant payments, a category where the US lags behind much of the world today. The FedNow system will allow paychecks, bill payments and other transfers of money to happen instantly and at all times, whereas existing wire services shut down on weekends. The Fed has already started a pilot programme for the service, but how quickly consumers can see the value of rapid payments isn't totally in the central bank's control. The Fed Vice Chair Lal Brainard said ultimately the number of American businesses and households that are able to access instant payments will depend on financial services providers, 
making the necessary investments to upgrade our payments infrastructure. So I think that this coming from the Federal Reserve um, is a really promising thing. That central institution push um, towards adoption of new tech can often be a very, very helpful one. It provides consistency, standardisation and increases access for wider parts of the population. But yeah, as has been commented on, it will depend on financial services actually making that investment. Finally, I think it's a really great move as it will bring in smaller institutions who might have been hesitant to sign up to um, established systems uh, and having that central institution in place um, will be much more inclusive for the ecosystem and drive, hopefully, adoption and investment overall. About time the US got faster payments. Okay, the next story is that Trust Bank, which is a digital bank formed by Standard Chartered and NTUC, has launched in Singapore. This was reported in Reuters, Yahoo News and various other places. So Trust Bank is a partnership between Standard Chartered Bank and leading Singaporean grocery retailer NTUC Fairprice, which has launched Singapore's latest digital bank. Following on from the launch of Grab Singtel's digital bank GXS, TrustBank offers customers a savings account that lets them earn up to 1.4% interest per year. NTUC union members are eligible for a 0.4% bonus interest per annum on deposits up to 50,000 Singaporean dollars for making five eligible visa purchases on their Trust credit card. Customers are also able to choose their repayment date, and many fees are eliminated, such as annual and foreign transaction fees. It also offers dual functionality as a credit and debit card, and customers can switch between the English and Mandarin language on the app. Um, I think this is a super exciting story. Uh, Singapore is such an interesting market. Uh, We've seen so much uh, innovation in Hong Kong. It's fascinating to see the same thing happening in Singapore with lots of new digital banks. Um, The established Singaporean banks are, you know, quite sophisticated, you know, DBS and so on. But fantastic to see them getting lots of competition. And of course, Standard Chartered is the firm that launched Mox with huge success in Hong Kong. So really, really happy to see this uh, launching and watching watching it closely. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week, which is that the PayPal story could be coming to a screen near you. A book about PayPal's origins um, has been optioned, and a team is working on pitching it to Hollywood, according to Protocol. Um, A book being optioned means that the producer has exclusive right to purchase the screenplay at some point in the future. The project is based on author Jimmy Sony's book, The Founders, A History of PayPal's Early Days, that digs deep into the company's origins and highlights the untold stories of how the company was built. Former PayPal's chief operating officer David Sachs revealed in a podcast recorded in March that his production company and another one owned by PayPal veteran Jack Selby had acquired the rights to the book. As PayPal veterans celebrated the 20th anniversary of the company's 2002 IPO at Peter Thiel's mansion in Los Angeles over the weekend, a crew filmed interviews with some of the attendees, according to multiple people present for the event. I'm tempted to start with you, Vinay, and say, were you at the event? Um, But perhaps that's an unfair question. Um, Do you think PayPal's uh, story is that exciting? Is is that going to make a good film? Uh, I I love that we're talking about this because the thing I didn't say at the top of the call is that uh, I'm more of a fintech uh, outsider than insider. I started my first half of my career as a film producer um, and and, and still tend to to be somewhat active in that space. So this is interesting to me on so many levels. Uh, you know, I, I think it's in some ways shocking that the story hasn't been told yet. Because if you, th- I mean, 
the, the kind of impact of the PayPal mafia, as it's called, it, it is so kind of multifaceted, but so entrenched in kind of modern, everything from kind of modern culture and the way that, you know, Elon kind of has, you know, reached celebrity status to politics, the way in which kind of Peter and others have played very actively in that space to everything that we, you know, did talk about here, right? You know, kind of a lot of their success has funded the next wave of, of fintech and we're probably in the kind of, you know, third wave, frankly, after that kind of the, the PayPal exit and so on. So uh, to me, it's kind of shocking that the story hasn't been told. I mean, elements of it have been told. I, I don't know if people know about this. It's actually quite compelling documentary called Nobody Speak about the lawsuit between the professional wrestler Hulk Hogan and Gawker that, uh, you know, was largely underwritten by Peter Thiel and, and it unpacks that I'm guessing much to his chagrin. Um, but so all that to say, I, you know, this is kind of there's probably a soap opera in there. There's a documentary in there. There's several movies in there. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. Interesting that the people about whom the story is about are involved. That that can always cut, you know, different ways. But we'll see. So this is a film you'd not only watch, you'd actually like to make this film. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know if it's the movie I want to make, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love movies about finance and tech, I will, I will say. <laughs> Tessa, do you think this could be fintech's sort of the social network moment? You remember that film that came out a few years back and kind of brought social media or really the antics of social media into the mainstream? Yeah, I think this could be epic. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I, I read that um, he played chess with all these people on the IPO day. Um, piece of deal. And I was just saying this is like Queen's Gambit meets social network vibes going on here. Um, I think it could be really cool. But in, on a serious note, I think the PayPal story should be told. I mean, I think it has a little bit. One of my colleagues was telling me about this book called PayPal Wars, which is sort of their fight against eBay, which apparently is really good read. But I think some sort of big Hollywood movie about this could be could be really cool. They, they were so ahead of the time with everything, um, figuring out, you know, how to do like payments in an unfortunate way when everyone else is still trying to figure out the internet. Um, I think there's a there's, there, there must be some really cool little narratives that go on underneath as well that could unearth um, pretty good a pretty good movie. Fantastic. Well, I've had two good viewing tips just in the last two minutes. Um, Nicole, what's, I think I'm going to ask everyone this, but what's your favourite film about finance or finances? Do you have one? Yeah, well, it used to be The Big Short, but... And this isn't technically about finance. Well, I suppose it is. But um, I've been obsessed with watching We Crashed on Apple TV about WeWork. Um, so I think, again, not technically a film, but I think that might have overtaken The Big Short. Tessa, your favourite? I, I love The Big Short. Um, Will Fort Street's obviously up there. I mean, Margot Robbie. But yeah, I think Big Short, the, the way it's filmed is, is... I still watch it and I still laugh and I still find it so interesting. And Vinay, what's your favourite film? You said you love... Um, finance and tech and, and films about them what's your favorite yeah i mean i have to concur kind of as of late uh the big short just nailed it on so many levels uh but maybe kind of reaching back into the library uh, i don't know if anybody's seen the movie boiler room it's a it's a it's a fairly pulpy uh take on finance but it's a fun watch i've got to say my favorite film about finance is actually um it's a wonderful life which is one of the last films in which the 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 hero was a banker um because it's all about the way that finance sits at the heart of any community and if you take that out it destroys the community um it's not an obvious finance theme but there is a finance theme in there okay well that wraps up this week's news show thank you so much to today's uh, guests you've been absolutely fantastic where can people find out a little bit more about you uh tessa you can find me on twitter at tessa bryant thank you so much for having me and vinay twitter as well at uh, hey vinay 
uh, with some underscores in between. And I, I think if you want to learn a little bit more about what Anthemis is focused on, I would encourage you to check out our insights page on our website where we write a lot about the investments we've made and the themes that we're interested in. And thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure. Likewise, our pleasure. And Nicole. You can get in touch with me directly at nicole.perry at 11fs.com. I would love to speak about anything that we've talked about today or anything fintech in general. Or you can find me on LinkedIn as Nicole Perry. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you to all of you for listening. Um, Please do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much indeed and goodbye. Goodbye.